you know, me proving to you why ShopWatNX is a viable company and is a company worth investing in is one thing. You know, that's where the storytelling and the metrics and the OKRs come in, you know, but me proving to you why you should target this Latinx community. If you don't know why it's important to invest in Latinas, then like this isn't a consultation, you know, and I feel like it was the VCs of color. Most of my VCs are of color, either black or Latinx that really understood and really had that competency of why Shop Latinx is important. When I joined NASDAQ, to me, it was like, okay, I've been a founder, I've worked in the financial industry, and now I want to see what happens at this stage of the journey when you go public. And after seeing from start to finish what is happening, I was like, okay, there's a problem here because for some reason, we're not seeing the wealth being kept at the later stages. It's the same people coming in and out of these deals at the same level that's holding this. So how do we start changing that? And so that's what made me go back to the early stage because I know that the only way to start changing that is to start investing in the earliest stages of the cycle so that we can grow entrepreneurs quicker and get you through those wealth cycles and retain wealth quicker. You're listening to Moneda Moves, a podcast where we cover the intersection of money and cultura. I'm your host, Leon Alfaro, a Latina award-winning journalist, producer, and strategist. On this podcast, I will highlight stories illustrating Latinx relationships with money, our contributions, and role in the American economy. Here, we'll increase transparency around the netto issues and achievements of our community, as well as that of our POC peers, to inspire you to pursue your own financial poder. Join me bi-weekly as we cover stories with our community's front and center alongside dinero experts, entrepreneurs, and innovators. No te lo quieres perder. I'm your host, Leon Alfaro, and you're listening to Moneda Moves. Today, we're talking about the big $1 million, how to successfully fundraise in today's digital age. And you were just listening to Laura Moreno Lucas, founder at venture capital firm LatVC, and Brittany Chavez, founder and CEO of Shop Latinx. This is the first of a two-part series we're doing with Latinx Professional Network, La Nueva Link. So it's also my pleasure to introduce Brianna Mendez. Bree, thanks so much for joining me as my co-host today. And today we're going to be talking about Latino entrepreneurs who have historically had difficulty attaining capital from banks investors, which they need to survive and scale at a very fundamental point. Per a report published by McKinsey, Latinos have the lowest rate of using bank and financial institution loans needed to start their businesses compared to other groups. So where does this leave Latinos? This means we traditionally have relied more on personal funds, but that doesn't mean that's the way things should be. So joining us today is a Latinx founder who has successfully fundraised for her company and a leader in the venture capitalist space who will both help us demystify the fundraising process and the gaps in the system where it can better serve Latinx founders. It's my pleasure to introduce Laura Moreno Lucas, partner at LatVC, one of the biggest Latino focused VC firms in the country, and who I also had the pleasure of working with at NASDAQ when she helped bring companies public. Today, in addition to her role as partner, she also mentors 500 startups and several nonprofits. Welcome to the panel, Laura. Yes, we have the iconic Brittany Chavez. She is founder and CEO of Shop Latinx. Check it out on shoplatinx.com. She is an LA native currently residing in Portland. 
And Shop Latinx is a curated marketplace of beauty, fashion, and lifestyle products made by and for Latina. So we're going to kick it off with you, Brittany. So Shop Latinx is a marketplace with a necessary mission to ensure Latinx creatives and founders feel seen. So what has it been like to build this incredible community? And why do you think that that has helped Shop Latinx make it to where it is today? That's a great question. You know, I think what it's been like, it's been, it's been really, it's been really difficult, but I think really worth it. I think being a founder, being a CEO, it really tests how much you want it. You know, I think even this past month was really a testament. Actually, every day is kind of a testament that kind of tests me and reminds me like how much I really want Shop Latinx to succeed because I do see it as an entity that's so much bigger than me. It's something that I started in 2016 as an Instagram account. And I think the reason why it's grown so much is because I've really taken the time to understand who this Latina consumer is that I'm speaking to, right? Not only am I her, but to remove myself from that and to really take time to leverage my empathy and understand who she is, what her values are, what types of products that she's looking for, and build that relationship with her. And on top of that, build authentic relationships with the brands in the marketplace and show them that, hey, we're a team, we're a small startup with big dreams, and we actually care, you know, and I think that's our value proposition in comparison to other marketplaces is that we cater to the fastest growing demographic in the United States. And I feel like sometimes that's overlooked and that's their bad. You know, that has nothing to do with us because we're going to grow with or without them. One third of the population is Latinx. We are the youngest demographic. So I think statistics aside, there's just so much value in getting to know her beyond just using her as representation, but actually amplifying the voices of the business owners within our community who have incredible brands and branding and products that are intentionally made. I think that's really our mission here at Shop Latinx is to make sure that these creators have a platform that really amplifies their existing business. On the flip side, for these young Latinas to have a beautiful and curated shopping experience that makes her feel seen. I think that's really the overall mission here at Shop Latinx. And we've managed to really build that community authentically. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think leading with empathy is hard to do. And I think it requires someone to be part of the community to be able to do that effectively. And so incredible work, Brittany. So you said in an interview before that instead of trying to rise the ranks of corporate, let me just bet on myself. I literally have nothing to lose because I'm starting from ground zero anyway. Powerful quote. Literally just gave me goosebumps. A lot of people, and especially Latinas who lead in entrepreneurship numbers could probably resonate with this like myself. So we're curious, what was the impetus for Shop Latinx and what motivated you to launch your company starting from zero and like expand on how that was like? Yeah, during that time, you know, it's 2016, I had this newfound love for my culture because during that time, there was a lot of anti-Latino rhetoric that was being spewed against us. And I had traveled back to Guatemala. I actually met a tia on Facebook and like a couple weeks later with my Uber money, bought a ticket, went out there for a few weeks and just got really inspired. You know, I came back and 
it was after one of my Uber rides that I, for some reason, opened up my laptop and saw that we had during that time, I think $1.3 trillion in annual spending power. But then I was like, well, where's the platform that I could shop from to support brands and brand owners that understand my culture and create dope products. And I found absolutely nothing. So that's when the shop at next Instagram was born. And then, you know, over time I saw that there was a lot of, yeah, I I started to hyper curate the feed and really focus on e-commerce brands. And over time, like people would DM me, I've probably gotten like around 500 DMs and emails like, Hey, I'm trying to purchase all these items. Like I'm on your site. You're just a directory. Like, where do I go? I'm like, Oh, you have to go on these sites. Then I was like, wait, I think that there's something here. There's an opportunity for me to create a marketplace. And I got into a few accelerator programs and long story short, here I am today. And I have a quick follow-up question to that. Could you detail some of those accelerator programs? How you were able to find those? What started it off was I got into this incubator program called Grid 110 based in Los Angeles. And from there, I have incredible mentors there to this day, one of them being Mickey Reynolds. And Grid 110 was really the pipeline that got me into my next accelerator program called Techstar. With Techstars, I was in the Techstars LA cohort in the middle of the pandemic. And that's when I got my first investment for $125,000. So when I commenced Techstars, they really prep you to start VC fundraising. So it was in Techstars that near the end, I had my pitch deck, I was pitching and a few months later, I, I started fundraising. And now I met my lead investor, who's Charles Hudson at Precursor. He's an amazing, well-respected, like that is my mentor. He's one of my mentors to this day. We ended up raising around a million, but even now, like the learning never stops. You know, there's so much I've yet to learn. And right now I'm in another accelerator program with Andreessen Horowitz, who's one of the biggest VC firms yep. in, in the United States. And it's called TXO, Talent Meets Opportunity. So I was one of, I think, eight companies selected and they gave me an additional investment of around a hundred thousand. And now I'm really kind of learning the intricacies of running an e-commerce marketplace, right? I come from a community and marketing background, but when it comes to e-commerce, SEO, AOV, customer retention, all of that. Like I'm literally in every day, there's not something that I don't learn, whether it's about myself, how to run a business period. You just can't stop learning when you're a founder. Amazing. Thank you for sharing, Brittany. There's so much to learn from the trajectory that you had, Brittany, from the fact that there wasn't a roadmap that you just had to, at some point, take the leap and say, I'm going to figure it out as I go. But the other thing that I'm hearing is that you saw opportunities and you leaned into that. You listened to your customers, which I think we'll learn a little bit more about in our next session with building a brand. And you were like, there's an opportunity here for a marketplace. And that's what I'm hearing is part of what gave you all of these amazing opportunities. The fact that you were able to listen to that and follow that roadmap as it appeared. Laura, you've had an interesting trajectory yourself. You spent a little bit more time in corporate, but through that, you were able to meet so many founders. I don't know that a lot of people know about your role at NASDAQ, which was a relationship manager. You essentially help companies go public onto the stock market. And so can you share a little bit more about your work at NASDAQ and what it meant to bring some of the biggest companies in the world to the second big exchange in the United States? Yeah, no, thank you, Leanne. Thank you, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. And congrats, Brittany, on all your success. I work with Charles Hudson. We co-invested in a deal 
He's awesome. I'm really loving how many Latinas he is backing because I know of another Latina he just invested in. So I'm like, well, you're not Latino, but you're investing in Latinas. <laughs> it goes to show sometimes that person that you don't think is going to back you, but he's doing great things. So congratulations. Yet my background is a little different. I did spend a lot of time in corporate America. And, you know, my last corporate job was at NASDAQ. I was managing director for new listings and capital markets on the West Coast. And as Leanne explained, what that meant was I was working with companies at the very late stages of their growth to help them go public. So that included helping them grow from a Series C all the way up to an E until they're a billion dollar corporation. So working with them on their investor relations, like how do they actually start to talk to investors and how do they actually think about communicating with like the KKRs, the Goldman, the JP Morgans to get them to invest in them at the later stage, how to think about your lawyers, your auditors, all the people that surround you at those later stages when you become a public company. And the most important thing that I tell people is the same fundamentals that you have as an early founder are the same fundamentals that you have to have at that later stage, which is how are you going to tell your story? How are you going to tell your story from the private markets to the public markets? Because when you're on the public market, that means every quarter you have to come out to all your shareholders on the public markets and tell them why you're going to meet your metrics every quarter. And they better be good because if not, then your stock price goes down. And so that fundamental story of why you're going to now take the company and really bring it to the world to experience and be part of it is so important. And so that is something that you work for years over how you tell that story. So for example, I worked with Airbnb for the entire time I was at NASDAQ. And so one of the key things that they wanted to think about is how do they tell the story about their host? And so they really thought about their host as entrepreneurs because they knew that Airbnb was helping them actually gain capital as they were sharing their home to other people. And so those are the things that we worked on is how do you translate that message to the public that we're empowering not only people to share their homes, but also creating a wealth in the communities by them becoming entrepreneurs. I forgot the exact name that we used for the Airbnb host, but that was something that we worked on. And I think the awesome thing that came out of that when they went public, and Leanne, I know you probably remember this, is we worked on the doorbells from around the world. And so the way that they went public, instead of ringing the NASDAQ bell, they rang doorbells around the world. What that experience gave me is seeing the capital flow from, you know, when you have an idea all the way up to mm. when you bring it to an exit. And that is a very interesting process because now I understand when you start from seed to series A to series B to series C to series D and to an exit. And all I can tell you is that we Latinas and Latinos and all of the diversity people that you can see black and brown are not at the top of that funnel. And so that is why I am very excited to be in the position that I am, because at least now that I understand the structure, I can try to help change that. 
Did you go into NASDAQ thinking that you might want to go back and help early stage? Or at what point did you decide, okay, I'm working at this part of the funnel when people are ready to exit. It's time for me to kind of go back and, and pay it back. How did that process go for no. you? So what happened was I was working in the financial industry prior. I was at TD Ameritrade and I was like, man, I'm making a lot of money here. I was making good money at TD Ameritrade and I was like, I love fashion. And so this was like when I was starting to put, okay, I'm going to date myself because this is when Facebook just kind of launched and everybody was opening their Facebook stores and everybody was getting going on Facebook. And I was like, people were actually interested in my fashion. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. So I had saved up some money and I said, you know what? Worst case scenario is I'm going to go back and get a corporate job and then see what happens. So I took the plunge. I left my corporate job. I saved up a year worth of runway and then just, you know, was trying to figure out, I was just telling another founder, I was like, I remember the moment when I knew I was like about to run out of cash and I had to get scrappy. And one of the things I did was like, I have a, a place in San Francisco. So I was like, huh, I could just Airbnb my place and go, you know, stay with my boyfriend for a little bit. <laughs> and I did that. I did that to keep it going. So you, you come up with all of these scrappy ways to keep it going. But when I launched my business, I was talking about fashion subscription before fashion subscription was even a thing. Like before Stitch Fix was- Before Rent the Runway. Yeah, yeah. So I had to educate the market on what fashion subscription was. And then what ended up happening was I later sold my business to Stitch Fix, which actually later went public on NASDAQ in 2018. Mm. So for me, that was like a full circle. When I joined NASDAQ, to me, it was like, okay, I've been a founder, I've worked in the financial industry, and now I want to see what happens at this stage of the journey when you go public. And after seeing from start to finish what is happening, I was like, okay, there's a problem here because for some reason, we're not seeing the wealth being kept at the later stages. It's the same people coming in and out of these deals at the same level that's holding this. So how do we start changing that? And so that's what made me go back to the early stage because I know that the only way to start changing that is to start investing in the earliest stages of the cycle so that we can grow entrepreneurs quicker and get you through those wealth cycles and retain wealth quicker. And so that's how you do it. Amazing. And it sounds like you're just the fit of, for the person to, to do this, to be in the partner position, because not only have you seen everything from up above, witnessed the deal flow at later stage and now earlier stage too, but you've been in it. You've been in the position of entrepreneur. So thanks so much for sharing that with us. And we definitely want to talk about fundraising, right, Bree? Yeah, no, for sure. And Brittany, so curious, when did you decide it was time to start fundraising? What kind of steps did you have to take to prepare that pitch? And if you could explain to us what goes into that process. Raising in a pandemic in Q4 of 2020. So that's when I started my fundraising journey. So Techstars was really the accelerator that I was in where I was like, okay, I need to raise VC money if I want to build a marketplace because there's no way that I can't and I don't qualify for any business loans. And, you know, this is a really big idea I have. And I know that VCs bet on and invest in companies that want to change the world. And like, I want to change the world with Shop Button X is how I saw it. So in Techstars, I actually had my first angel investor 
reach out to me. Her name is Pilar Johnson. She's a Black Latina. She's the managing partner and co-founder of Debut Capital. And she was actually following me in my journey for so long. And she reached out to me and we had a meeting and she told me like, hey, what, you know, she was asking questions about Shop Latinx. She was like, hey, we just started this firm and their firm is amazing. They invest in the dopest black and brown and indigenous companies. And they're one of the biggest value add investors that I have on my cap table. And so she told me, you know, and I met Bobak, who's her co-founder. They were like, we want to invest in Shop Latinx. And they came from this position of like, you know, a lot of these investors that I've spoken to, especially when you're a minority founder, there is this dynamic that I think a lot of VCs try to play where it's like, like, why should I invest when it's like, no, this is a mutually beneficial partnership. You know, like I'm giving you access to be a part of this journey. And in exchange for that, like I'm giving you equity. It's not like you're just giving me money and I'm not giving you ownership of this billion dollar company that's going to be, you know? And so Pilar and Bobak, you know, in the midst of me being in Techstars, and meeting investors through them, they're the ones that introduced me to Charles, you know, and they were the ones that I would spend two hours on calls with a week. And they would be going through their Rolodex of contacts, trying to find me potential investors to, to match me with so that I can have meetings with. I will say I probably met with around 50 investors. Wow. I quickly came to realize that Looking back, there were so many lessons that I've learned from fundraising. And one of them is like, I just tweeted this the other day, like, you know, me proving to you why Shop Latinx is a viable company and is a company worth investing in is one thing, you know, that's where the storytelling and the metrics and the OKRs come in, you know, but me proving to you why you should target this Latinx community like you probably shouldn't be a VC. Like, I don't even know, like, why are you here? <laughs> you know, like, why am I having this conversation with you? Because if you don't know why it's important to invest in Latinas, then like, this isn't a consultation, you know? And I feel like in hindsight, I put too much effort trying to convince people why focusing on this community was important. Mm. And I came to realize that it was the, the VCs of color. Most of my VCs are, are of color, either black or Latinx that really understood and really had that competency of like why shop Latinx is important. They understand the nuanced approach that I was taking in terms of how to market to this diaspora of people. Mm -hmm. And so they really understood where I was coming from. And I think I'm so grateful that there's not one investor that I have on my cap table who like doesn't deserve to be there. All of them have empathy and they understand me and they understand this community and they just want to be of service, which I think is great. But in the pandemic, I remember being on a call when the <laughs> terrorists raided the White House and I'm like frazzled on the call, like my phone's getting pinged. There's just a lot that's happening when you're fundraising. And then just to layer that with who I am as a Latina, as a woman, as low income, second gen, you know, sleeping on my friend's couch, subletting my apartment in Boyle Heights. It was really anxiety inducing because at that time, and I'm still working on my relationship with finances, you know, and with money, it's, it's really hard. This is the first time that I've ever been comfortable in my life, you know, but during that time, I just felt like I remember getting that anxiety because it was over Thanksgiving break where I was waiting on my yes from Charles and that was going to be the biggest check. And I remember just like having the worst anxiety, crying, like, you know, is he going to say yes? And he finally did. And I was like, oh my God, like now I can continue, you know, and 
a year and a half later, I'm still doing the thing. <laughs> and amen. And I think a really strong takeaway here is that you shouldn't have to prove yourself to certain VCs or sort of like overextend yourself and having to prove yourself, but finding VCs that understand your mission because in the end, they're investing in the future of your company. And Laura, I, I mean, I think a lot of people are also here wondering what does it take for the VCs that get it? I almost like Brittany in my head when you were talking, I'm like the VCs that get it, get it. And the ones that don't, don't. Right. But for the VCs that get it, what makes a successful pitch when you're hearing from a founder? One of the things that Brittany found in her journey is someone who can understand and, and relate to the problem that she's solving. Right. And I think that based on the venture community and the structures that have been in place for a long time, it's been very white dominated a certain way that it's been structured. So the structure of it, you've been used to pitching a certain way, used to pitching hundreds. I mean, actually, you only pitch 50, but the typical accelerator, and when I was a founder, it was at least over 100 VCs that gave me no's. And that is not non-typical. So it's changed. And what's changed is that there's more emerging managers that are coming into the system that are diverse, that are supporting our community, and that there's more capital being funneled into it. I think there is still, you know, a very interesting thing that you're going to see happen over the next five years is what happens with all of these emerging fund managers that have invested in companies, Shop Latinx, to make sure that you succeed at the highest levels because you know a lot of these are emerging fund managers and they're only going to get you to maybe series C. So I'm hoping that those Andreessen's and those later stage Tiger Globals and everybody, even though they're not diverse, they come in and support because that would be a shame if that doesn't happen. But you know, like I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons why I think that you were able to find that person and why your pitch was so unique was because you clearly identified the problem that you were trying to solve. And that was relatable to Charles. So when I think about, you know, founders who are speaking to me, one of the reasons I've got into this is because number one, I was a founder, I'm a Latina. And I know there's a lot of Latinos and Latinas out there in our community that need capital. And so why are they not getting capital? I think they have great ideas. Just tell me the problem that you're trying to solve. And if you're trying to show, hey, well, I need to get to X in growth. I need to get, you know, these resources here. Well, I can try to help that. If the idea is clearly articulated and the problem that you're solving, we can help. Then that is, to me, a great way to approach a VC. So really clearly identifying your problem really helping me understand how you're going to go quicker, faster, stronger than your competitors, where I can help, right? Because that's a big thing. It's not just about capital. It's where I can help. And then why you're the person to do it. And you are definitely the person to do it. So those are the things that when we look at companies, we think about that. I know that today this person has this unique business that they have this problem that they're definitely going to solve. They are the expert in their domain. They've clearly articulated. Now they need these key things that I know I can help with. Boom, let's go. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I do have a follow-up question. It seems like 
and what you were sharing too as well, Brittany, it's, it's so important to sort of like create this relationship where there's a certain like level of trust with the VC. They understand what problems you need to solve. They understand like what you need to help them get there, to help you get there. But do you have any context to provide in terms of like, when do you know when you're working with the right VC, like when that trust is really there? Is, is it more of like a gut check? Is it a track record? Like what's the best way to sort of vet the right VC to work with? That's a really good question. You know, I think to even touch on what Laura said, like I am so grateful and honored because I know like I've seen stories where founders are like, I pitched to 200 VCs, got 200 no's. And it was my 201st that I got one yes. In hindsight, even as a Latina founder, I am so blessed to be able to close around in the five months that I did, even given the circumstances of the world. You know what I mean? And I think Charles was my first angel check was the one that got me to my lead VC, you know, which is really big. And he was probably like the sixth conversation that I had. And I think in hindsight, that time in my life was such a blur, but I want to say it was just a gut check. I talked to Charles, you know, his demeanor. I feel like even then I was such a green founder, even my pitch deck, I look back at it. I'm like, Oh my God, that's so embarrassing, you know, but it is a testament to my growth whenever I see it but he saw something in me. You know, there were times where like when he and I have one-on-ones every Wednesday, oh my God, he saw my transition from living in Los Angeles to moving to Portland. Like that was chaotic. I was going through a personal, just evolutionary stage on top of trying to build a company. Yeah. When I was talking to them, I guess it was a gut check. And then also as founders too, you're probably going to have a dozen investors on your cap table it's not like, you know, obviously you need to send them your monthly, it's ideal that you send them your the monthly investor updates, but there's only going to be a handful that you're going to develop close relationships with, if that. And I think there's three that I'm really close with now that have handheld me, have been my biggest cheerleaders that have made introductions that literally have stepped up as my interim CTO. I think it was just this gut check and this, this way of positioning they talked to me like I was an equal, you know, whereas there was other VCs that were kind of patronizing or kind of like scoffing at my idea where they were like, oh no, like I want in like, well, like, what do you think about us being investors? You know, I think there was just a sense of humility that they had that I saw that I wanted, like, I want to work with you guys. Well, at the earliest stages, pre-seed or seed, you are betting 100% on the founder. Yeah, true. Even if you can clearly articulate your, your problem and how yeah. you're going to grow. I mean, it is you. So Charles and all of your investors are betting on you. And so they have to have a really great relationship and seeing what the possibility that you're going to do and support you in that journey so that it is very important to have that close relationship. And that's right. You won't have it with all of them. And it gets trickier as you grow, because once you get to series A, then you have to start thinking about board members. And, and that's when it even becomes more complex because then you have people that, you know, invested in you right now, like Charles, but at some point there's going to be a bigger investor that's going to want to come in and maybe they won't have the same thoughts or ideals that he does, even though Mm. he's been there for you like this whole time. So then there's going to be an interesting dynamic that you're going to have to kind of consider when you start building out your board, because it's going to be based on what people's strengths are, as opposed to who's helped you grow. 
<laughs> so it, it becomes more, more and more complex as, as you grow. And so that's why you see all of these crazy things that happen at the later stage, like, you know, the Uber CEO, I mean, I know he had a, obviously a, a situation of sexual harassment, but you see a lot of those situations where the founder gets taken out right before an exit because they put in operators that can help run the company as a public company. And what's important there is who you have on your board and who can fight for you to stay on your board. And sometimes the decision is, yeah, you can just sit back and, you know, let this other person come in, operate the company and take it public because you've done what you could for the company to get it to where it needs to go. And so those are hard challenges that you'll face as you go and first few Latina IPOs because I want to see you ringing that bell. <laughs> Don't make me cry. <laughs> I didn't even think of that though. Like series A, you know, like I'm prepping for seed in Q1 of next year. And I feel like pre-seed, you're kind of like a noob. Series A of Syria, even C, you know, and I want to make sure that I come in like full throttle, really sh- showing these VCs that like, we're fucking smart. We have companies worth investing in and like, you should want to invest right now before the valuation goes up. Yeah, no, Series A is the serious, is the yeah. serious time yeah. to get to Series A. Yeah. And I, and I will say it's really hard too, because I want, you know, if I could, I would invest in everybody, but I have situations where I love the founder so much and I love their idea, but it's just, there's for me and how I can help them. It just doesn't work, but I really love the founder. <laughs> and then I, it's so hard to break that as a, you know, a VC. So you get in these dynamics where like, oh my God, well maybe, and I start to think about it. I'm like, okay, I just have to be honest with myself and I have to be honest with them that this is the best thing for both of us because in the long run I won't be able to help and and it's really about that and helping you scale in the journey that you're going to be on because it's a long journey so as much as I want to sometimes invest in certain deals I just know that there's not something that I can clearly scale and that's the hardest part even when I really love the founder Wow. You've both given us such a valuable look behind the scenes of your journey here to where you are today. And so this is a hard question to ask because it sounds like your experiences are so layered and definitely not one dimensional. But Laura, I'd love to hear your biggest money learning since taking on this VC partner role or in the lead up to it. And Brittany, for you in fundraising and getting to your current stage for Shop Latinx. I think for me, my biggest money learning is the capital that we're putting into Latinos prior to what I've seen currently, and I'd say in the last maybe year, you know, has been so small, so small. People would give $50,000 or 100K and people are thinking, oh my God, that is, that's great. That should get you to where you need to go. No, because if you look at your counterparts, and it didn't really dawn on me until I'm, I'm back in the seat again about how different that infusion of capital is into us as entrepreneurs and the Latinx community, where you see this other person getting a million dollars or $2 million or $5 million for the same exact idea and concept, and you're getting 100K. And so it really does take that capital at the early stages to accelerate you and get you to the next stage quicker. And for me, that is 
been validated through and through from not only the later stages, but once again, at the earliest stages, that it's having the opportunity for you to comfortably build what you're building with that capital and, you know, not mismanage it, of course, but know what you need to do to get your company to the next stage in it. And that's what it does require. Ooh, that was good. It's a couple of things for me, but the first I'll say is having money is so nice. (laughs) Having money is so nice. I think living comfortably is so nice. Getting out of survival mode and not having to think about how I'm going to make rent next month is so nice. And to have a hundred percent of my focus be on building this company, being a good leader, having weekly therapy, just everything, just taking care of myself, investing in my self-care is just so damn nice. That's one. I've never experienced this before. And I think that there are times too, where I'm actually working through this in therapy is like, it's hard. It's like my one year anniversary of like being on salary. And that's something that I've had to work through is that like, I have this fear of like, I don't want my intentions with shop line next to be fear driven or rooted in scarcity. And I feel like sometimes I fall back on that where I'm like, no shop, this needs to be successful. Like if something, if I'm having a bad day or something went wrong at work, I feel like the foundation of my livelihood has now become rocky and I'm going to go back to where I was last year, which is no money, no stability, no nothing. So I think that's something that I'm working through right now. Even the most noble of ideas, if it's rooted in scarcity or fear or anxiety, that's not sustainable, you know? So I think that has been a learning for me. And even being in this current cohort, that's something that I realize a lot of founders of color go through. Like I have someone in my Andreessen accelerator talking about how he feels bad for spending. I think it's like a $300 gym membership and to also be in like a basketball league. And like, he refuses to pay for it you know, and we're like, dude, pay for it. And so next, the following week, they brought on like this spiritual advisor to talk to us about like our money wounds and our finances. And like all of us were just broke down crying. Another founder said, was, you know, I'm not building this startup for the money. Like I'm doing it to support my family and I'm doing it to show other women of color that they can do it. And the question that the, the woman's response was like, well, why not? Like, why not for the money? What's wrong with having money? You know, like, Why not do it for the money? Why do we associate money with being bad? Again, back to that, like, is it nobility or is it insecurity disguised as nobility? Are we just insecure? So that's just a learning that I've had, but it's been fun. I'm honored to be in this position. Like what a freaking ride, man. The makes me look, it's, it's been a ride and I'm just so grateful. Do you think it's cultural too, though? Because I know my family, all my Latin. Oh friends, my God! Yes, yes. Tienes que trabajar. Tienes que trabajar porque necesitas dinero. Porque necesitas dinero. And I'm like, okay, okay. Let me get to work. Yeah. Money, money, and I'm gonna, run out of money. I'm gonna run out of money. I'm gonna run out of money. <laughs> all about it. No, and we we did talk in another interview with Nora Mecadena, yeah. who's also venture capitalist. She's yeah. my investor. Yes, she is. She actually, that's right. You're in her portfolio. So Nora May shared that 
growing up, she had a similar relationship with money where it was just like, it's the relationship that you have to consistently be on, consistently be working. If you're not working, then you're not deserving of that money. That, that was like the kind of learning that yeah. she had from her family. But knowing what she knows now, she's able to go back to her family and say like, oh, I see it differently. I see it so differently. And isn't that like such, such a privilege, but also like such a testament to how far you've come. Laura, Brittany, if you can share with us quickly, like what's next for the both of you, what's next for Shabrati next, what's next in Laura's VC journey, please share. We're so interested. <laughs> yeah, I'll go first. I mean, what's next is, I think this is the most laser focused I've ever been since starting shop Latinx. And one of the biggest compliments I got yesterday when I had my one-on-one with Charles was like, I was running through quarterly, like OKRs, KPIs, financial model, hiring plan. I like presented it to him and he kind of like stopped and smiled was like, he was like, you're objectively running a better company than you were three months ago. He was like, shop Latinx is objectively a better company. And you know, he was like, I'm so proud of you. And now I understand where my priorities are with Shop Latinx. I think last year I was just, me and my team were just like throwing shit at the wall and seeing if it would stick, you know, and that wasn't the way to go. And now it's just really two things, you know, growing, increasing the volume of really dope brands onto the marketplace, you know, making sure that their happiness is key and then growing our consumer base, you know, and we have a lot of plans for how we're going to achieve that. And that's my focus. I'm probably sitting here 12 hours a day going in between from opening my kitchen to coming back on my laptop. And I'll probably be here for the remainder of the year. And I do plan on going to New York to meet a lot of the brands and I want to do a lot more like brand dinners and small events, but There's a lot to be done with me and my team. So it's just working a lot. For me, well, you know, since I was just named partner this year and one of the few Latina partners of a hundred million dollar VC fund, my focus is to deploy capital. I am here. I want to find all the wonderful Latinos and Latinas and give them the capital that they need to get going and do everything in my power to keep them going and support them and pull resources from the top, you know, break down doors, push, 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 get more visibility for our community at every level on media and the capital markets across the US and Latam all over the place. So for me, it's, it's building not only a brand that represents our community, but also supporting our community through, through capital. A shout out to both Brittany and Laura for being here with us today. Brittany, thanks so much for bringing your candor to the panel and Laura for sharing your expertise on the VC side, as well as an entrepreneur. Now, everyone, if you want to continue following both of these incredible women on social media, please feel free to follow Brittany Chavez on Chavez Brit on Instagram and Shop Latinx. Laura, you can find her at Pando underscore Cap or Lali, L-A-L-Y Designs. And of course, continue to follow Moneda Moves and La Nueva Link across social networks. Please stay tuned. We'll have a part two coming next, all about building a brand that lasts. 
Until next time. Thank you, mi gente, for joining us this week on Moneda Moves. Before you go, please make sure to hit follow on this podcast so you can receive new episodes right when they are released. You can follow right now in the app you're using to listen to this podcast. Also, continue keeping cuentas and keeping tabs on our Latinx community and money moves via our free newsletter written by yours truly at monedamoves.substack.com. That's monedamoves.substack.com. I'll see you there. Hasta la próxima.